Part Eight of Bat Wing by Sax Romer, read by Mark Nelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Bat Wing, Chapter Twenty Two, Cullen Camber's Secret. I brought this bat wing from Haiti. He explained, replacing it in the tray. It was found beneath the pillow of a negro missionary who had died mysteriously during the night. He returned the tray to the drawer, closed the latter, and, standing erect, raised clenched hands above his head. With no thought of blasphemy, he said, but with reverence, I thank God from the bottom of my heart that Juan Menendez is dead. He reseated himself whilst Harley regarded him silently. Then, the evil that men do lives after them, he murmured. He rested his chin upon his hand. A bat-wing, he continued musingly. A bat-wing was nailed to Menendez's door. He stared across at Harley. Am I to believe, sir, that this was the clue which led you to the guest-house? Paul Harley nodded. It was. I understand. I must therefore take no more excursions into my special subject, but must endeavour to regard the matter from the point of view of the inquiry. Am I to assume that Menendez was acquainted with the significance of this token? He had seen it employed in the West Indies. Ah, the black-hearted devil! But I fear I am involving myself more deeply in suspicion. Perhaps, Mr. Harley, the ends of justice would be better served if you were to question me and I to confine myself to answering you." "'Very well,' Harley agreed. "'When and where did you meet the late Colonel Menendez?' "'I never met him in my life.' "'Do you mean that you have never spoken to him?' "'Never.' "'Hm. Tell me, Mr. Camber, where were you at twelve o'clock last night? Here, writing. And where was Ah Tsong?' Ah Tsong? Cullen Camber stared uncomprehendingly. Ah Tsong was in bed. Oh, did anything disturb you? Yes, the sound of a rifle shot. You knew it for a rifle shot? It was unmistakable. What did you do? I was in the midst of a most important passage, and I should probably have taken no steps in the matter but that Ah Tsong knocked upon the study door to inform me that my wife had been awaked by the sound of the shot. She is somewhat nervous, and had rung for Ah Tsong, asking him to see if all were well with me. Do I understand that she imagined the sound to have come from this room? When we are newly awake from sleep, Mr. Harley, we retain only an imperfect impression of that which awakened us. True, replied Paul Harley. And did Ah Tsong return to his room? Not immediately. Permit me to say, Mr. Harley, that the nature of your question surprises me. At the moment I fail to see their bearing upon the main issue. He returned and reported to my wife that I was writing, and she then requested him to bring her a glass of milk. Accordingly he came down again, and going out to the kitchen, executed this order. Ah, he would have to light a candle for that purpose, I suppose. A candle or a lamp? replied Cullen Camber, staring at Paul Harley. Then his expression altering. "'Of course!' he cried. "'You saw the light from Cray's folly. I understand at last.' We were silent for a while, until— How long a time elapsed between the firing of the shot and Ah Tsong's knocking at the study door?' asked Harley. "'I could not answer definitely. 
I was absorbed in my work, but probably only a minute or two. Was the sound a loud one? Fairly loud, and very startling, of course, in the silence of the night. The shot, then, was fired from somewhere quite near the house? I presume so. But you thought no more about the matter. Frankly, I had forgotten it. You see, the neighborhood is rich with game. It might have been a poacher." Quite, murmured Harley, but his face was very stern. I wonder if you fully realize the danger of your position, Mr. Camber. Believe me, was the reply, I can anticipate almost every question which I shall be called upon to answer. Paul Harley stared at him in a way which told me that he was comparing his features line for line with the etching of Edgar Allan Poe which hung in his office in Chancery Lane, and— I do believe you, he replied, and I am wondering if you are in a position to clear yourself. On the contrary, Camber assured him, I am only waiting to hear that Juan Menendez was shot in the grounds of Cray's Folly, and not within the house to propose to you that unless the real assassin be discovered, I shall quite possibly pay the penalty of this crime." "'He was shot in the Tudor garden,' replied Harley, within sight of your windows." "'Ah!' Cullen Camber resumed the task of stuffing Shag into his corn-cob. "'Then, if it would interest you, Mr. Harley, I will briefly outline the case against myself. I had never troubled to disguise the fact that I hated Menendez. Many witnesses can be called to testify to this. He was in Cuba when I was in Cuba, and evidence is doubtless obtainable to show that we stayed at the same hotels in various cities of the United States prior to my coming to England and leasing the guest-house. Finally, he became my neighbor in Surrey." He carefully lighted his pipe, whilst Harley and I watched him silently. Then. Menendez had the bat-wing nailed to the door of his house, he continued. He believed himself to be in danger, and associated this sign with the source of his danger. Excepting himself, and possibly certain other members of his household, it is improbable that any one else in Surrey understands the significance of the token save myself. The unholy rites of voodoo are a closed book to the Western nations. I have opened that book, Mr. Harley. The powers of the Obia man, and especially of the arch-magician known and dreaded by every negro as Batwing, are familiar to me. Since I was alone at the time that the shot was fired, and for some few minutes afterward, and since the Tudor garden of Cray's Folly is within easy range of the guest-house, to fail to place me under arrest would be an act of sheer stupidity." He spoke the words with a sort of triumph. Like the fakir, he possessed the art of spiritual detachment, which is an attribute of genius. From an intellectual eminence he was surveying his own peril. Cullen Camber in the flesh had ceased to exist, he was merely a pawn in a fascinating game. Paul Harley glanced at his watch. "'Mr. Camber,' he said, "'I have just sustained the most crushing defeat of my career.' The man who had summoned me to his aid was killed almost before my eyes. One thing I must do, or accept professional oblivion." "'I understand,' Cullen Camber nodded. "'Apprehend his murderer?' "'Ultimately, yes. But firstly, I must see that to the assassination of Colonel Menendez a judicial murder is not added.' "'You mean?' asked Camber eagerly. 
I mean that if you killed Menendez, you are a madman, and I have formed the opinion during our brief conversation that you are brilliantly sane." Colin Camber rose and bowed in that old-world fashion which was his. "'I am obliged to you, Mr. Harley,' he replied. "'But has Mr. Knox informed you of my bibulous habits?' Paul Harley nodded. "'They will, of course, be ascribed,' continued Camber, "'and there are many suitable analogies to deliberate contemplation of a murderous deed. I would remind you that chronic alcoholism is a recognized form of insanity.' His mood changed again, and sighing wearily he lay back in the chair. Over his pale face crept an expression which I knew, instinctively, to mean that he was thinking of his wife. "'Mr. Harley,' he said, speaking in a very low tone which scorned to accentuate the beauty of his voice, "'I have suffered much in the quest of truth. Suffering is the gate beyond which we find compassion. Perhaps you have thought my foregoing remarks frivolous, in view of the fact that last night a soul was sent to its reckoning almost at my doors. I revere the truth, however, above all lesser laws and above all expediency. I do not, and I cannot, regret the end of the man Menendez. But for three reasons I should regret to pay the penalty of a crime which I did not commit. These reasons are, one, he ticked them off upon his delicate fingers, it would be bitter to know that devil Menendez, even in death, had injured me. Two, my work in the world, which is unfinished, and three, my wife. I watched and listened, almost awed by the strangeness of the man who sat before me. His three reasons were illuminating. A casual observer might have regarded Cullen Camber as a monument of selfishness. But it was evident to me, and I knew it must be evident to Paul Harley, that his egotism was quite selfless. To a natural human resentment and a pathetic love for his wife, he had added, as an equal clause, the claim of the world upon his genius. "'I have heard you,' said Paul Harley quietly, "'and you have led me to the most important point of all. What point is that, Mr. Harley?' You have referred to your recent lapse from abstemiousness. Excuse me if I discuss personal matters. This you ascribed to domestic troubles, or so Mr. Knox has informed me. You have also referred to your undisguised hatred of the late Colonel Juan Menendez. I am going to ask you, Mr. Camber, to tell me quite frankly what was the nature of those domestic troubles, and what had caused this hatred which survives even the death of its object. Cullen Camber stood up, angular, untidy, but a figure of great dignity. "'Mr. Harley,' he replied, "'I cannot answer your questions.' Paul Harley inclined his head gravely. "'May I suggest,' he said, "'that you will be called upon to do so under circumstances which would brook no denial.' Cullen Camber watched him unflinchingly. "'The fate of every man is hung around his neck,' he replied. Yet, in this secret history which you refuse to divulge, and which therefore must count against you, the truth may lie which exculpates you. It may be so, but my determination remains unaltered." Very well, answered Paul Harley quietly, but I could see that he was exercising a tremendous restraint upon himself. I respect your decision, but you have given me a giant's task 
and for this I cannot thank you, Mr. Camber." I heard a car pull up in the road outside the guesthouse. Cullen Camber clenched his hands and sat down again in the carved chair. "'The opportunity has passed,' said Harley. "'The police are here.'" Chapter 23 Inspector Aylesbury Cross-Examines "'Oh, I see,' said Inspector Aylesbury. "'A little private confab, eh?' He sank his chin into his enveloping folds, treating Harley and myself each to a stare of disapproval. "'These gentlemen very kindly called to advise me of the tragic occurrence at Cray's Folly,' explained Cullen Camber. "'Won't you be seated, Inspector?' "'Thanks. But I can conduct my examination better standing.' He turned to Paul Harley. "'Might I ask, Mr. Harley,' he said, "'what concern this is of yours?' I am naturally interested in anything appertaining to the death of a client, Inspector Aylesbury. Oh, so you slip in ahead of me, having deliberately withheld information from the police, and think you are going to get all the credit, is that it?" That is it, Inspector, replied Harley, smiling. An instance of professional jealousy. Professional jealousy? cried the Inspector. Allow me to remind you that you have no official standing in this case whatever. You are merely a member of the public, nothing more, nothing less. I am happy to be recognized as a member of that much misunderstood body. Ah, well, we shall see. Now, Mr. Camber, your attention, please." He raised his finger impressively. I am informed by Miss Beverly that the late Colonel Menendez looked upon you as a dangerous enemy. Were those her exact words? I murmured. Mr. Knox! The inspector turned rapidly, confronting me. I have already warned your friend, but if I have any interruptions from you, I will have you removed." He continued to glare at me for some moments, and then, turning again to Cullen Camber, "'I say, I have information that Colonel Menendez looked upon you as a dangerous neighbor.' "'In that event,' replied Cullen Camber, "'why did he lease me an adjoining property?' "'That's an evasion, sir.' Answer my first question, if you please." "'You have asked me no question, Inspector.' "'Oh, I see. That's your attitude, is it? Very well, then. Were you, or were you not, an enemy of the late Colonel Menendez?' "'I was.' "'What's that?' "'I say, I was. I hated him, and I hate him no less in death than I hated him living.' I think that I had never seen a man so taken aback," Inspector Aylesbury, drawing out a large handkerchief, blew his nose. Replacing the handkerchief, he produced a notebook. "'I am placing that statement on the record, sir,' he said. He made an entry in the book, and then, "'Where did you first meet Colonel Menendez?' he asked. "'I never met him in my life.' "'What's that?' Cullen Camber merely shrugged his shoulders. I will repeat my question," said the inspector pompously. Where did you first meet Colonel Juan Menendez? I have answered you, inspector. Oh, I see. You decline to answer that question. Very well, I will make a note of this. He did so. And now, said he, what were you doing at midnight last night? I was writing. Where? Here. What happened? Very succinctly, 
Cullen Camber repeated the statement which he had already made to Paul Harley, and, at its conclusion, "'Send for the man Ott Song,' directed Inspector Aylesbury. Cullen Camber inclined his head, clapped his hands, and silently Ott Song entered. The inspector stared at him for several moments, as a visitor to the zoo might stare at some rare animal. Then, "'Your name is Ott Song,' he began. "'Ott Song,' murmured the Chinaman. "'I am going to ask you to give an exact account of your movements last night.' "'No sabby.' Inspector Aylesbury cleared his throat. "'I say, I wish to know exactly what you did last night. Answer me.' Ah Song's face remained quite expressionless, and, "'No sabby,' he repeated. "'Oh, I see,' said the inspector. "'This witness refuses to answer at all.' "'You are wrong,' explained Cullen Camber quietly. "'Ah Song is a Chinaman and his knowledge of English is very limited. He does not understand you." "'He understood my first question. You can't draw wool over my eyes. He knows well enough. Are you going to answer me?' he demanded angrily of the Chinaman. "'No sabby, master,' he said, glancing aside at Cullen Camber. "'Number one in placey man gotchi no pigeon.' Paul Harley was leisurely filling his pipe, and— if you think the evidence of Ah Tsong important, Inspector, he said, I will interpret if you wish. You will what? I will act as interpreter. Do you want me to believe that you speak Chinese? Your beliefs do not concern me, Inspector. I am merely offering my services. Thanks, said the Inspector dryly, but I won't trouble you. I should like a few words with Mrs. Camber. Very good. Cullen Camber bent his head gravely and gave an order to Ah Tsong, who turned and went out. "'And what firearms have you in this house?' asked Inspector Aylesbury. "'An early Dutch arquebus, which you see in the corner,' was the reply. "'That doesn't interest me. I mean up-to-date weapons. And a Colt revolver, which I have in a drawer here.' As he spoke, Cullen Camber opened a drawer in his desk and took out a heavy revolver of the American Army Service pattern. "'I should like to examine it, if you please.' Camber passed it to the inspector, and the latter, having satisfied himself that none of the chambers were loaded, peered down the barrel and smelled at the weapon suspiciously. "'If it has been recently used, it has been well cleaned,' he said, and placed it on a cabinet beside him. "'Anything else?' "'Nothing.' No sporting rifles? None. I never shoot. Oh, I see. The door opened, and Mrs. Camber came in. She was very simply dressed, and looked even more childlike than she had seemed before. I think Ah Song had warned her of the nature of the ordeal which she was to expect, but her wide-eyed timidity was nevertheless pathetic to witness. She glanced at me with a ghost of a smile, and— Isola, said Cullen Camber, inclining his head toward me in a grave gesture of courtesy. Mr. Knox has generously forgiven me a breach of good manners, for which I shall never forgive myself. I beg you to thank him, as I have done. It is so good of you, she said sweetly, and held out her hand. But I knew you would understand that it was just a great mistake. Mr. Paul Harley, Camber continued, my wife welcomes you, 
and this, Isola, is Inspector Aylesbury, who desires a few moments' conversation upon a rather painful matter." "'I have heard, I have heard,' she whispered. "'Atsong told me.' The pupils of her eyes dilated as she fixed an appealing glance upon the inspector. In justice to the latter, he was palpably abashed by the delicate beauty of the girl who stood before him, by her naivete, by that childishness of appearance and manner which must have awakened the latent chivalry in almost any man's heart. "'I am sorry to have to trouble you with this disagreeable business, Mrs. Camber,' he began, "'but I believe you were awakened last night by the sound of a shot.' "'Yes,' she replied, watching him intently. That is so. May I ask at what time this was heard? Atsong told me it was after twelve o'clock. Was the sound a loud one? Yes, it must have been to have awakened me. I see. Do you think it was in the house? Oh, no. In the garden? I really could not say, but I think it was farther away than that. And what did you do? I rang the bell for Atsong. Did he come immediately? Almost immediately. Was he dressed then? No, I don't think he was. He had quickly put on an overcoat. He usually answers at once, when I ring for him, you see. I see. What did you do then? Well, I was frightened, you understand, and I told him to find out if all was well with my husband. He came back and told me that Cullen was writing. But the sound had alarmed me very much. Oh, and now perhaps you will tell me, Mrs. Camber, when and where your husband first met Colonel Menendez." Every vestige of color fled from the girl's face. "'So far as I know, they have never met,' she replied haltingly. "'Could you swear to that?' "'Yes.' I think that hitherto she had not fully realized the nature of the situation, but now something in the inspector's voice or perhaps in our glances, told her the truth. She moved to where Cullen Camber was sitting, looking down at him questioningly, pitifully. He put his arm around her and drew her close. Inspector Aylesbury cleared his throat and returned his notebook to his pocket. "'I am going to take a look around the garden,' he announced. My respect for him increased slightly, and Harley and I followed him out of the study. A police sergeant was sitting in the hall, and Ah Tsong was standing just outside the door. "'Show me the way to the garden,' directed the inspector. Ah Tsong stared stupidly, whereupon Paul Harley addressed him in his native language, rapidly and in a low voice, in order, as I divined, that the inspector should not hear him. "'I feel dreadfully guilty, Knox,' he confessed in a murmured aside for any Englishman, fictitious characters accepted, to possess a knowledge of Chinese is almost indecent. Presently, then, I found myself once more in that unkempt garden of which I retained such unpleasant memories. Inspector Aylesbury stared all about and up at the back of the house, humming to himself and generally behaving as though he were alone. Before the little summer study he stood still and—'Oh, I see,' he muttered. What he had seen was painfully evident. The right-hand window, beneath which there was a permanent wooden seat, commanded an unobstructed view of the Tudor garden in the grounds of Cray's Folly. Clearly I could detect the speck of highlight upon the top of the sundial. 
The inspector stepped into the hut. It contained a bookshelf upon which a number of books remained, a table and a chair, with some few other dilapidated appointments. I glanced at Harley, who saw that he was staring as if hypnotized at the prospect in the valley below. I observed a constable on duty at the top of the steps which led down into the Tudor garden, but I could see nothing to account for Harley's fixed regard, until— "'Pardon me one moment, Inspector,' he muttered brusquely. Brushing past the indignant Aylesbury, who was examining the contents of the shelves in the hut, he knelt upon the wooden seat and stared intently through the open window. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, he chanted. Good, that will settle it. Oh, I see, said Inspector Aylesbury, standing strictly upright, his prominent eyes turned in the direction of the kneeling Harley. One, two, three, four, and so on will settle it, eh? If you don't mind me saying so, it was settled already." "'Yes,' replied Harley, standing up, and I saw that his eyes were very bright and that his face was slightly flushed. "'You think the case is as simple as that?' "'Simple!' exclaimed the inspector. "'It is the most cunning thing that was ever planned, but I flatter myself that I have a good straight eye which can see a fairly long way.' "'Excellent,' murmured Harley. I congratulate you. Myopia is so common in the present generation. You have decided, of course, that the murder was committed by Ah Tsung." Inspector Aylesbury's eyes seemed to protrude extraordinarily. "'Ah Tsung!' he exclaimed. "'Ah Tsung!' "'Surely it is palpable,' continued Harley, "'that of the three people residing in the guest-house, Ah Tsung is the only one who could possibly have done the deed.' Who could possibly, who could possibly, stuttered the inspector, then paused because of sheer lack of words. Review the evidence, continued Harley coolly. Mrs. Camber was awakened by the sound of a shot. She immediately rang for Ah Tsung. There was a short interval before Ah Tsung appeared, and when he did appear he was wearing an overcoat. Note this point, inspector. Wearing an overcoat. He descended to the study and found Mr. Camber writing. Now Ah Tsung sleeps in a room adjoining the kitchen on the ground floor. We passed his quarters on our way to the garden a moment ago. Of course you had noted this. Mr. Camber is therefore eliminated from our list of suspects." The inspector was growing very red, but ere he had time to speak, Harley continued. The first of these three persons to have heard a shot fired at the end of the garden would have been Ah Tsung, and not Mrs. Camber, whose room is upstairs and in the front of the house. If it had been fired by Mr. Camber from the spot upon which we now stand, he would still have been in the garden at the moment when Mrs. Camber was ringing the bell for Ah Tsung. Mr. Camber must therefore have returned from the end of the garden to the study, and have passed Ah Tsung's room unheard by the occupant, between the time the bell rang and the time that Ah Tsung went upstairs. This I submit to be impossible. There is an alternative. It is that he slipped in whilst Ah Tsung, standing on the landing above, was receiving his mistress's orders. I submit that the alternative is also impossible. We thus eliminate Mr. Camber from the case as I have already mentioned. Eliminate! Eliminate!" cried the inspector, beginning to recover power of speech. 
Do you think you can fuddle me with a mass of words, Mr. Harley? Allow me to point out to you, sir, that you are in no way officially associated with this matter." "'You have already drawn my attention to the fact, Inspector, but it can do no harm to jog my memory.' Harley spoke entirely without bitterness, and I, who knew his every mood, realized that he was thoroughly enjoying himself. Therefore I knew that at last he had found a clue. "'I may add, Inspector,' said he, that upon further reflection I have also eliminated Ah Tsung from the case. I forgot to mention that he lacks the first and second fingers of his right hand, and I have yet to meet the marksman who can shoot a man squarely between the eyes, by moonlight, at a hundred yards, employing his third finger as trigger-finger. There are other points, but these will be sufficient to show you that this case is more complicated than you had assumed it to be." Inspector Aylesbury did not deign to reply, or could not trust himself to do so. He turned and made his way back to the house. Chapter 24 An Official Move We re-entered the study to find Mrs. Camber sitting in a chair very close to her husband. Inspector Aylesbury stood in the open doorway for a moment, and then, stepping back into the hall, "'Sergeant Butler!' he said, addressing the man who waited there. "'Yes, sir. Go out to the gate and get Edson to relieve you. I shall want you to go back to headquarters in a few minutes.' "'Very good, sir.' I scented what was coming, and as Inspector Aylesbury re-entered the room, "'I should like to make a statement,' announced Paul Harley quietly. The inspector frowned, and lowering his chin, regarded him with little favor. I have not invited any statement from you, Mr. Harley," said he. Quite, returned Harley, I am volunteering it. It is this. I gather that you are about to take an important step officially. Having in view certain steps which I also am about to take, I would ask you to defer action, purely in your own interests, for at least twenty-four hours." I hear you, said the inspector sarcastically. Very well, inspector. You have come newly into this case, and I assure you that its apparent simplicity is elusive. As new facts come into your possession, you will realize that what I say is perfectly true, and if you act now, you will be acting hastily. All that I have learned I am prepared to place at your disposal, but I predict that the interference of Scotland Yard will be necessary before this inquiry is concluded. Therefore, I suggest, since you have rejected my cooperation, that you obtain that of Detective Inspector Wessex, of the Criminal Investigation Department. In short, this is no one-man job. You will do yourself harm by jumping to conclusions, and cause unnecessary trouble to perfectly innocent people." "'Is your statement concluded?' asked the inspector. "'For the moment I have nothing to add.' "'Oh, I see. Very good. Then we can now get to business always with your permission, Mr. Harley." He took his stand before the fireplace, very erect, and invested with his most official manner. Mrs. Camber watched him in a way that was pathetic. Camber seemed to be quite composed, although his face was unusually pale. "'Now, Mr. Camber,' said the inspector, "'I find your answers to the questions which I have put to you very unsatisfactory.' "'I am sorry.' 
said Cullen Camber, quietly. "'One moment, Inspector,' interrupted Paul Harley. "'You have not warned Mr. Camber.' Thereupon the long-repressed wrath of Inspector Aylesbury burst forth. "'Then I will warn you, sir,' he shouted. "'One more word, and you leave this house!' "'Yet I am going to venture on one more word,' continued Harley, unperturbed. He turned to Cullen Camber. "'I happen to be a member of the bar, Mr. Camber,' he said, "'although I rarely accept a brief. Have I your authority to act for you?' "'I am grateful, Mr. Harley, and I leave this unpleasant affair in your hands with every confidence.' Camber stood up, bowing formally. The expression upon the inflamed face of Inspector Aylesbury was really indescribable, and, recognizing his mental limitations, I was almost tempted to feel sorry for him. However, he did not lack self-confidence, and— "'I suppose you have scored, Mr. Harley,' he said, a certain hoarseness perceptible in his voice. "'But I know my duty, and I am not afraid to perform it. Now, Mr. Camber, did you, or did you not, at about twelve o'clock last night, warn the accused," murmured Harley. Inspector Aylesbury uttered a choking sound, but— "'I have to warn you,' he said, "'that your answers may be used as evidence. I will repeat. Did you, or did you not, at about twelve o'clock last night, shoot with intent to murder Colonel Juan Menendez?' Isola Camber leapt up clutching at her husband's arm, as if to hold him back. "'I did not,' he replied quietly. "'Nevertheless,' continued the inspector, looking aggressively at Paul Harley whilst he spoke, "'I am going to detain you pending further inquiries.' Cullen Camber inclined his head. "'Very well,' he said. "'You only do your duty.' The little fingers clutching his sleeve slowly relaxed and Mrs. Camber, uttering a long sigh, sank in a swoon at his feet. "'Isola! Isola!' he muttered. Stooping, he raised the childlike figure. "'If you will kindly open the door, Mr. Knox,' he said, "'I will carry my wife to her room.' I sprang to the door and held it widely open. Cullen Camber, deadly pale, but holding his head very erect, walked in the direction of the hallway with his pathetic burden. Misreading the purpose written upon the stern white face, Inspector Aylesbury stepped forward. "'Let someone else attend to Mrs. Camber,' he cried sharply. "'I wish you to remain here.' His detaining hand was already upon Camber's shoulder when Harley's arm shot out like a barrier across the inspector's chest, and Cullen Camber proceeded on his way. Momentarily he glanced aside, and I saw that his eyes were unnaturally bright. "'Thank you, Mr. Harley,' he said, and carried his wife from the room. Harley dropped his arm, and crossing, stood staring out of the window. Inspector Aylesbury ran heavily to the door. "'Sergeant!' he called. "'Sergeant! Keep that man in sight! He must return here immediately!' I heard the sound of heavy footsteps following Cambers up the stairs, then Inspector Aylesbury turned, a bulky figure in the open doorway, and— "'Now, Mr. Harley!' said he, entering and reclosing the door. "'You are a barrister, I understand. Very well, then. I suppose you are aware that you have resisted and obstructed an officer of the law in the execution of his duty.' Paul Harley spun round upon his heel. 
Is that a charge, he inquired, or merely a warning? The two glared at one another for a moment, then— From now onward, continued the inspector, I am going to have no more trouble with you, Mr. Harley. In the first place, I'll have you looked up in the law list. In the second place, I shall ask you to stick to your proper duties and leave me to look after mine." "'I have endeavoured from the outset,' replied Harley, his good humour quite restored, "'to assist you in every way in my power. You have declined all my offers, and finally, upon the most flimsy evidence, you have detained a perfectly innocent man.' "'Oh, I see. A perfectly innocent man, eh?' perfectly innocent, Inspector. There are so many points that you have overlooked. For instance, do you seriously suppose that Mr. Camber had been waiting up here night after night on the off chance that Colonel Menendez would appear in the grounds of Cray's Folly? No, I don't. I have got that worked out. Indeed, you interest me. Mr. Camber has an accomplice at Cray's Folly." "'What?' exclaimed Harley and into his keen grey eyes crept a look of real interest. "'He has an accomplice,' repeated the inspector. "'A certain witness was strangely reluctant to mention Mr. Camber's name. It was only after very keen examination that I got it at last. Now, Colonel Menendez had not retired last night, neither had a certain other party. That other party, sir, knows why Colonel Menendez was wandering about the garden at midnight.' At first, I think, this astonishing innuendo did not fully penetrate to my mind, but when it did so, it seemed to galvanize me. Springing up from the chair in which I had been seated, "'You preposterous fool!' I exclaimed hotly. It was the last straw. Inspector Aylesbury strode to the door, and throwing it open once more, turned to me. "'Be good enough to leave the house, Mr. Knox,' he said. "'I am about to have it officially searched.' and I will have no strangers present." I think I could have strangled him with pleasure, but even in my rage I was not foolhardy enough to lay myself open to that of which the inspector was quite capable at this moment. Without another word I walked out of the study, took my hat and stick, and opening the front door, quitted the guest-house, from which I had thus a second time been dismissed ignominiously. Appreciation of this fact which came to me as I stepped into the porch, awakened my sense of humour, a gift truly divine which has saved many a man from desperation or worse. I felt like a schoolboy who had been turned out of a classroom, and I was glad that I could laugh at myself. A constable was standing in the porch, and he looked at me suspiciously. No doubt he perceived something very sardonic in my merriment. I walked out of the gate before which a car was standing, and as I paused to light a cigarette I heard the door of the guest-house open and close. I glanced back, and there was Paul Harley coming to join me. "'Now, Knox,' he said briskly, "'we have got our hands full.' "'My dear Harley, I am both angry and bewildered. Too angry and too bewildered to think clearly.' "'I can quite understand it. I should have become homicidal if I were forced to submit for long to the company of Inspector Aylesbury.' Of course, I had anticipated the arrest of Cullen Camber, and I fear there is worse to come. What do you mean, Harley? I mean that, failing the apprehension of the real murderer, I cannot see, at the moment, upon what the case for the defence is to rest. 
but surely you demonstrated out there in the garden that he could not possibly have fired the shot. Words, Knox, words. I could pick a dozen loopholes in my own argument. I had only hoped to defer the inevitable. I tell you, there is worse to come. Two things we must do at once. What are they? We must persuade the man on duty to allow us to examine the Tudor garden, and we must see the chief constable, whoever he may be, and prevail upon him to requisition the assistance of Scotland Yard. With Wessex in charge of the case I might have a chance. Whilst this disastrous man Aylesbury holds the keys, there is none." "'You heard about what he said about Miss Beverley?' We were now walking rapidly along the high road, and Harley nodded. "'I did,' he said. "'I had expected it. He was inspired with this brilliant idea last night, and his ideas are too few to be lightly scrapped. If the chief constable is anything like the inspector, what we are going to do, heaven only knows. I take it, Harley, that you are convinced of Cullen Camber's innocence." Harley did not answer for a moment, whereupon I glanced at him anxiously. Then, "'Cullen Camber,' he replied, "'is of so peculiar a type that I could not presume to say of what he is capable or is not capable. The most significant point in his favor is this. He is a man of unusual intellect. The planning of this cunning crime to such a man would have been child's play. Child's play, Knox. But is it possible to believe that his genius would have failed him upon the most essential detail of all, namely, an alibi? It is not. Of course it is not. Which, continuing to regard Camber as an assassin, reduces us to the theory that the crime was committed in a moment of passion. This I maintain to be also impossible. It is no deed of impulse. I agree with you. Now, I believe that the inquiry is going to turn upon a very delicate point. If I am wrong in this, then perhaps I am wrong in my whole conception of the case. But have you considered the mass of evidence against Cullen Camber?" "'I have, Harley,' I replied sadly. "'I have.' Think of all that we know, and which the inspector does not know. Every single datum points in the same direction. No prosecution could ask for a more perfect case. Upon this fact I pin my hopes. Where an Aylesbury rushes in, I fear to tread." The analogy with an angel was accidental, Knox, he added smilingly. In other words, it is all too obvious. Yet I have failed once, Knox, failed disastrously, and it may be that, in my anxiety to justify myself, I am seeking for subtlety where no subtlety exists. End of chapter 24